Good afternoon. Greetings to all of you. My name is Michael Lerner. I am the president and founder of Commonweal. And how many people of you are at Commonweal for the first time? Just so we have a sense. Great. Well, we want to welcome all the friends of KWMR and all the friends of Aggie and Walter Murch who are here for the first time. Um, and um, special thanks to uh, Point Reyes Books, to Steve Costa and Kate Levinson and KWMR. Um, as many of you know, uh, Steve and Kate and Point Reyes Books are a regular partner for the new school and we're always really delighted to do things together. And all of us who listen to KWMR are just so grateful for this extraordinary uh, cultural institution in West Marin. In fact, I was just thinking about how wonderful it is that these two organizations that bring us uh, the written and the spoken word and uh, word and sound and sound and music uh, are here and that we are celebrating the enormous gift of uh, this great uh, West Marin radio station. So I hope we all do everything we can in this, in this benefit to support our local radio station. It's a great, great contribution to our community. So I wanted to start with that. So I'm not supposed to, and I won't, introduce uh, Aggie and Walter Murch, but I will say a few things. Um, many of you know Aggie not only as a, a wonderful contributor to KWMR, but as a very gifted short story writer, radio journalist, and tremendous contributor to our community. And um, so it's a, a very special thing that Aggie called me for tea to her house and uh, quietly told me that we were going to do this together. And who was I to uh, uh, interfere with a, a great force of nature who is uh, beloved and respected by all of us? So I said, yes, Aggie, that is what we are going to do together. And so there was just no question about it. Um, and I have to say that in West Marin, uh, West Marin, as you all know, is a, a community of extraordinarily talented people. But I know of no greater genius in West Marin than Walter Murch. Um, he is, to me, uh, the most gifted person I know in this extraordinary community. I'm really not fit to talk about his film work or about the work um, that he and Aggie are going to talk about today. But I will say that um, we did a new school conversation with Walter some time ago on the... Uh, on the resonance or regularity of the planets, uh, in which he rediscovered an ancient doctrine about the harmonic relationship of the planets and gave a talk on that, which is gaining credence in very uh, highly respected uh, astronomical fields. And I said to Walter before we began that I think this will be his true historical significance, the recovery of a very ancient doctrine about the harmonic relationship of the planets and what that really says about the nature of the universe, which to me is astonishingly interesting. So um, 
It is uh, with enormous pleasure um, that I turn this over to Amanda Eichstead, the executive director and station manager of KWMR, who will introduce Aggie and Walter Murch. Thank you very much. Welcome. Big crowd here today. Uh, thank you to Michael Lerner of Commonweal for this wonderful space. It is fitting that we are in Bolinas, the community that Walter and Muriel Merch have called home since 1972. It is also appropriate that Commonweal is a place for the study of holistic healing, as Muriel is a retired nurse who practiced at the West Marin Medical Center in the 1970s. And this site, that is the home to Commonweal, is also one rich in radio history, being the transmit site for RCA. I want to thank, again, Steve Costa and Kate Levinson for their support and partnership from Point Reyes Books. They support KWMR ongoing, and uh, as you heard, they support Commonweal. A portion of the book sales will go to support KWMR, and this is a free event, but like all other free events at Commonweal, there is a hat in the back, the bowler, at the door if any of you would like to share your appreciation with Commonweal. And for this program today, Muriel Murch and Walter Murch will be in conversation, and the topic today is The Bird That Swallowed Its Cage that was published this month by Counterpoint Press. And it is with great pleasure that I get to introduce our speakers today. Muriel, Aggie, to many of us, Murch, graduated as a nurse in England in 1964 and obtained a BSN from San Francisco State in 1991. In 1965, she married Walter Scott Murch and from 1972 raised their four children on the farm. In the early 1970s, she worked as one of the nurse midwives at the West Marin Medical Center. Muriel began her radio work in 1989 at KPFA Pacifica in Berkeley, California, under the extraordinary mentorship of Eric Bowersfeld, who is here today. Yay! <laughs> she began reading stories and literature before holding conversations with writers and other artists and introduce, producing radio dramas. In 1995, she became one of the founders of KWMR-FM. Muriel also wrote The Story of Christmas, The Muscovy Duck, which was published in a limited edition in, 19, in 2010. Sorry, 1910. <laughs> Muriel continues to write stories and poetry while working as an independent radio producer for KWMR 90.5 and 89.9 FM. When not traveling with Walter, Aggie runs the small, organic blackberry farm, which remains the Merch home. I really want to thank Muriel for her unwavering support of KWMR. I really appreciate the insights, advice, and mentoring that she has given me over the last two and a half years so very much. For those of you unfamiliar with Walter Merch's day job, it is as a film editor and sound mixer. Walter Murch has been honored by both British and American Motion Picture Academies, winning his first BAFTA awards in 1975 for the film editing and sound mixing on The Conversation. In 1979, he received his first Oscar for Best Sound for Apocalypse Now. 
1997, Merch was awarded Oscars for both film editing and sound mixing on The English Patient, as well as that year's British Academy BAFTA Award for Best Editing. Other nominations from both academies include for Best Film Editing for Julia, 1978, two nominations for Best Film Editing from the American Academy for the films Ghost and The Godfather Part III in 1991. In 2004, for the film Cold Mountain, he received a ninth Academy nomination for Film Editing, as well as British Academy nominations for Film Editing and Sound Mixing. Merch directed and co-wrote with Gil Dennis the film Return to Oz, released in 1985. Merch co-wrote and was responsible for sound montage and re-recording on THX 1138. He was also sound effects supervisor for The Godfather, American Graffiti, and The Godfather Part II. Up to this year, Merch has been re-recording Mixer on all of the films for which he has also been picture editor. Merch's other credits include picture editing for The Unbearable Lightness of Being, Romeo is Bleeding, The Talented Mr. Ripley, K-19, The Widowmaker, Jarhead, Youth Without Youth, and Tetro. He has also been involved in film restoration, noticeably Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, 1998, Francis Coppola's Apocalypse Now, Redux, 2001, and the Edison Dick. Dixon Experimental Sound Film, 1894. Over the last 35 years, Merch has given lectures, presentations, and seminars on cinema at film schools and festivals in the US and throughout the world. In 2012, Merch was invited to serve as the film mentor for the Rolex Mentor and Protege Arts Initiative, an international philanthropic program that pairs masters in their disciplines with emerging talents for a year of one-to-one creative exchange. Merch wrote In the Blink of an Eye, 2001, which has been translated into 10 languages. His work has been the subject of two other books, The Conversations by Michael Ondaatje, 2002, and Behind the Scene by Charles Koppelman, 2004. The Bird That Swallowed Its Cage, published in 2012, is Merch's selected translation of work by the Italian poet and novelist Curzio Malaparte. Between films, he pursues interests in the science of human perception, cosmology, and the history of science. Since 1995, he has been working on a reinterpretation of the Titius Bode law of planetary spacing based on data from the Voyager probe, the Hubble telescope, and recent discoveries of exoplanets orbiting distant stars. Please warmly join me in welcoming Walter Murch and Muriel Murch. So while he is miking Walter, I might want to mention for those of you who take note of this sort of thing, that is is the same dress with which we turned the switch at KWMR 13 years ago. So. <laughs> it's important. It is important. <laughs> Men don't notice that kind That's of thing. <laughs> 
okay? Yeah, I just, um, I, was, I was listening to all of that stuff, um, but uh, I, I think nothing is quite as difficult as being interviewed by your wife in public, so. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Books. Recently, I watched a documentary film from Canada called Prom Night in Mississippi. It's produced and directed by Paul Saltzman, and in it, Morgan Freeman goes on a wonderfully grumpy rant about young people today needing to read more books. Freeman believes that beyond any other art form, books are where you, the audience, the reader, are in control where it is your imagination that opens up the words into your image, your heart, and your mind. And after watching, uh, okay, you may, might disagree with him choosing music, visual arts, film, or theater, and after watching a late quartet last night, I bow my head in that direction, but I'm still with Mr. Freeman. And this afternoon, it is my pleasure to share with you a conversation <laughs> on one of the most beautiful books that I have read. <laughs> the Bird That Swallowed Its Cage, as Amanda said, was published this month by the Counterpoint Press, and it is Walter's selected translation of work by the Italian poet and novelist Cuso Malapate. Born in 1898, Cuso Malapati's early life was shaped by the personal, geopolitical, and historical conflicts of his time. With his own particular gene pool, this seems to have set him up on his path as an observer, always a foreigner, and pouring those observations into his writing. He became a journalist, war correspondent, and novelist, constantly fascinated by power and war, and a lover of all things beautiful. Walter, you ended your biographical notes on Malapati saying, Today, the problematic contradictions and collisions of Malaparte's life seem like a sped-up film of the first half of the 20th century. German-Italian, Protestant-Catholic, fascist-communist, journalist-novelist, editor-architect, playwright-columnist, film director-composer, soldier-pacifist, diplomat-prisoner. Almost 60 years after his death, he remains a controversial, polarizing figure in Italy. Maybe you could start by giving us a brief outline of Malapati's upbringing until he ran away to World War I. Um, sure. <laughs> um, I think, though, uh, I, I, he, he was somebody completely unknown to me. Um, until the mid-1980s. Uh, I'd studied Italian literature at uh, university in the United States and then uh, I'd gone to the Perugia uh, University for Foreigners in Italy and I'd worked a couple of times in Italy. But um, his name meant nothing to me when I read it for the first time, but it was in a a French book on cosmology that uh, I bought, having run out of things to read in France. I was working on the um, uh, unbearable lightness of being in the mid-1980s. And I picked up this book, written by kind of the Carl Sagan of France. And um, about a third of the way through the book, trying to describe 
um, uh, conditions uh, shortly after the Big Bang, um, where there was a sudden phase shift uh, and suddenly uh, material substances started pouring out of the, this cornucopia of the Big Bang. Um, and he, he used all of his science chops to describe uh, what was going on. And then he said, well, but the best, the clearest example of this is a story that Malaparte tells. Um, and this was the first time I'd read that name. But the story that he then uh, recounted in a few paragraphs was so hair-raising and uh, visually captivating. Um, it concerned uh, uh, an event during the siege of Leningrad in 1942. Uh, Malaparte, being Italian, was a war correspondent, but because he was on that side of the war, he was stationed with the uh, Finns who were fighting with the Germans against the, against the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, there had been a bombardment. The, the Germans had bombarded uh, the area around Leningrad and had started a forest fire. And that had encroached on a, a, some barracks where the horses of the Soviet cavalry were um, uh, installed. And the horses managed uh, to break out of the, their uh, barns and run through the burning forest uh, looking for some escape, which they found in the waters of Lake Ladoga, which is the big lake next to uh, uh, what was then Leningrad. And um, this was where the author of the cosmology book inserted a little point, which was, under certain circumstances in nature and also in, especially in laboratories, if the drop in temperature is fast enough, if the water is pure enough uh, and still enough, you can actually get substances, water being one of them, uh, past the point at which they would congeal or freeze. Uh, so this water in the lake, this was sometime in late October of 42, had actually gotten a several degrees below the freezing point, but it was still liquid. In a sense, the water didn't quite know where to begin. Sort of like the, you know, what it, it takes a grain of sand to allow an oyster to make a pearl. Somewhat similar situation with water molecules turning to ice. So the, in a sense, it's a tinderbox uh, waiting to go off. And out of the forest ran these hundreds of uh, Soviet cavalry uh, horses. Uh, they went into the water seeking refuge from the forest fire, and the water instantly, as it does in these circumstances, remembered that it should be frozen, and then the whole lake instantly turned to ice. The next morning, when the forest fire had burned itself out, Malaparte and the other Finnish uh, people that he was with went out and said, look, the lake has froze overnight. And then they looked and saw, what are those bumps over there? And having walked across the ice, they discovered themselves in this horrific sculpture garden, kind of like a, uh, something from the, the Acropolis Gone Mad, where there were all these horses' heads sticking, pure white, sticking up out of the frozen ice, all of them facing towards the land where the forest fire was. 
And there they remained for the rest of the year. Um, uh, whenever you wanted a break uh, from combat, you would go and sit on one of these horses' heads and sort of walk around smoking a cigarette. Um, but uh, anyway, something like this in atomic uh, terms happened right after the Big Bang. And that's one of the reasons we're here. Uh, we are congealed like that. But I made a note, who is Malaparte? And uh, what was this book? Uh, because he, the author didn't explain, he just said Malaparte as if I should know. And uh, so when I got back to Berkeley, um, ransacked the university library in Berkeley, and sure enough, turned up uh, this book called Caput, which was a book that Malaparte was secretly writing because they wouldn't allow him to publish uh, during the war. And then when Mussolini fell, uh, he returned to Italy and found a publisher um, during the Italian Civil War that followed, that, that was contemporaneous with uh, uh, the Second World War. And um, the book uh, found readers all over the, the world. It was a bestseller in the United States and England and France. Um, and he, he, Malaparte was already well known, uh, but this made his fame spread uh, further over the world. But by the time the 1980s rolled around, his obscurity had taken over again, and uh, uh, this, uh, he was not an author that was known to me or, or many people. Even, even in Italy, um, there are a f he, he's not as well known as I think, uh, certainly the, not as well known as he, as he used to be. But uh, part of his fame was a kind of Hemingway-esque um, challenge uh, to um, um, not be confined to do one thing. Um, and uh, he, he occupied, to a certain extent, in the 20s and 30s um, in Italy, somewhat like the place that Hemingway did uh, in the United States. And um, uh, he, as Aggie said, he was a, uh, a writer, but he, he was... Uh, he had um, grown up in Prato, in just outside of Florence. His father was German. His mother was Italian. The, having a German name in Italy, the, even then, was problematic. You want to fit in with everybody else. And his last name was Suckert. And um, uh, that caused problems. He kept running away from home. And uh, at the age of 16, he ran all the way to France and joined the French army fighting against the Germans, who were his father's people. Um, when Italy joined the war the next year, he joined the Italian army and fought, as a result, fought all four years uh, of World War I uh, in uh, France. Um, and, you know, it doesn't take much imagination to think of, you know, what kind of 16-year-old would run off to war, lie about his age, fight in one of the you know, toughest wars of the 20th century, survive uh, fighting against his namesakes, uh, in a sense, the Germans on the other side, with a German name. Um, and at the end of that, he, uh, he had risen to the rank of uh, lieutenant and uh, was appointed through some 
process uh, as the, the press attache at the Versailles Peace Conference uh, in 1919. And leveraging out of that, he became part of the diplomatic corps in Italy um, and was assigned uh, part of Italy's first uh, legation to the newly reformed uh, Polish uh, government. And he threw all that over after a year, returning to Italy, writing a, a very controversial novel that was banned by the Italian state on the, uh, uh, one, one of the most disastrous battles that the Italians had fought during World War I called Caporetto. And um, he was at that time part of uh, a whole generation of people, mostly soldiers who had fought in the war, who had uh, survived, um, and who were anxious to change everything uh, because what they saw in terms of the mismanagement and the corruption of, uh, um, of the way the, the Italian society was structured vis-a-vis -vis the military, um, uh, there was a big, strong reformist uh, policy uh, that um, was called fascism. And in its early idealistic phase, this was to, the idea was to do away with everything that had caused all of the problems that they had found in, in World War I. Um, of course, history took several left turns and uh, by the mid-1920s, when Mussolini had consolidated his power, uh, it, fascism had turned into something else. And um, Malaparte wrote throughout all this period as a fascist author, um, but he put a capstone on that in the early 30s by writing an expose of how Mussolini and Hitler and Lenin had come to power, called the technique of the coup d'etat. And uh, he was thrown into prison uh, and kicked out of the fascist party and sent into exile on one of the islands in the Mediterranean. Um, so all of that uh, was uh, um, unknown to me. I discovered all of this in the, in the process of finding out who this fascinating person was. Well, Malapati writes that the destiny of men is not to live in freedom, but to live free within a prison. And this was a statement, I think, that came out of this imprisonment from the technique, I can never say it. Darling, you can go ahead and say that for me. The technique of the coup. Coup d'etat. Thank you very much. Um, but that led to him returning to Italy. He had been in Scotland for some reason after that, and then he returned to Italy knowing he was going to go back right. to prison. So what is, what is that push in him that, that will tempt those fates and say, well, maybe I will, maybe, maybe my, my Hemingway-ness will get me through, or maybe it won't. But there was a part of him that was very much prepared to go forward, almost to experience the experience. Yeah, I, I think so. It, uh, the, the title of this book, uh, that, um, of these translations, is called The Bird That Swallowed Its Cage. And from this event, 1933, up until 1943, um, Malaparte was in and out of prison seven or eight times, uh, imprisoned both by the fascists uh, and by the Americans, 
when they uh, moved into Italy. They were suspicious of him and threw him into jail. Um, and um, re relating how, how did he metabolize the experience as a writer of being imprisoned uh, so often, he, um, one of the phrases was, I'm, I am a bird that has swallowed its cage. So in a sense, ra rather than trying to deny it, he somehow took his experiences of being in prison and internalized them. Um, so I, I, I think, yes, he, he'd published this technique book in France. Of course, it wouldn't have been published in Italy. So it was published in France, um, in French, and uh, it was banned in Italy. It was burned in Germany. Um, and um, he probably would have gotten away with it, whatever that means, but he also went out on a limb and said bad things about a man named Italo Balbo, who was Mussolini's heir apparent. And that kind of meshed the gears, uh, and he was, he was summoned back to Italy to answer these charges. And um, he doesn't, I, I've never found anything specific about him writing about why he did go back. Um, but one, one of the pieces in this book is uh, uh, him in Scotland. He'd, he'd gone from France up to Scotland with his girlfriend of the time. And um, I, I probably many conversations about should I go back or not. And um, if you read the, the, the story, uh, she clearly thinks it's a bad idea. Um, there are lots of silent looks and heads turned away. Um, and, um, but he, he knows he's going back and he's kind of thinking, well, maybe this is it. You know, as uh, full of action and adventure and achievements as my life has been, maybe this is the end of it and I'm going to wind up uh, in prison or worse. But the fact is he did go back. Um, whether it was, did he think he was gonna get away with it somehow? Could be. Uh, there's a story that one of his biographers tells. Uh, sometime in the 1920s, Malaparte was chatting at a cafe and mentioned in the course of this conversation that the worst thing about Mussolini was the way he dressed. Could you believe the tie that he wore when he was giving the speech? And of course, somebody was listening to that and uh, the word was put out and two days later, he found himself on the carpet in front of Mussolini uh, having to defend himself for having criticized the tie. And he somehow managed to wriggle his way in and out. But then as he headed for the door, having been waved away, he stopped at the door kind of Columbo-like and turned and said, and by the way, the tie you're wearing today is even worse. <laughs> so, um, so this... Um, this pattern got repeated over and over in his life. One of the chapters in Kaput uh, involves him having dinner at, in Poland during the war with Governor General Frank, who was the, the self-described king, Nazi king of Poland. And um, the, the conversation turned back to this book, that uh, the technique of the coup d'etat, and uh, he, he was asked by Frank and the other dinner guests to defend his statement that Hitler was really a woman, that there were transvestite elements obvious in Hitler. 
And rather than try to backpedal, like his experience with, with uh, Mussolini, he charged even deeper. Uh, and as a, as a way of escaping from these situations, uh, it served him well. Um, he became amusing, um, and they tolerated it, whereas anyone who had shown the slightest fear or tried to pull back uh, would have wound up uh, you know, with his feet sticking out of a hole in the street. Um, so it. Uh, so let me interrupt here for a moment. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, when you talk about that, um, that discovery that Malapati made, that that it was much better that he could get along better by just zapping people and going forward, and that to show fear was something that uh, the oppressors of that time would really push on and nail on. You took that knowledge and used and, and, and folded it back into some of your film work. Can you give us the example of that? Um, Caravaggio? Sure. Thank you. <laughs> um, this, uh, Malaparty's dad was German and um, I, I think they had a very problematical relationship. Um, and one of the things I think that he learned from his own experience with his father was never show fear. And he extended this to his analysis of the German people in general, is that the thing that got you into trouble with them if you were in a slightly weaker position was showing that you were afraid. And that if you didn't, if you just, as this example with the, you know, Hitler as a woman, if you kept a brave face on it, your chances of getting away were better. Um, so he had probably had personal experience uh, with his dad like this uh, and, and extended it uh, more globally. But uh, I was editing The English Patient. Uh, this was back in the mid-90s. And there was a scene with uh, the character Caravaggio um, who had been caught. Uh, he was a spy and his, his identity as a spy had been discovered uh, and he was chained to a table uh, with a German interrogator who was trying to find out the names of, you know, as usual, the names of other people um, from Caravaggio. And uh, Caravaggio resists, and the interrogator presses, uh, and there's resistance and presses. And then finally the interrogator says, to hell with that, uh, I'm going to cut off your thumbs. Um, if you, you know, every time you don't give me information, I'll just cut off another uh, finger. Is a thumb a finger? Well, maybe. Um, and... Uh, whether he really intended to do this um, is ambiguous in the, in the book, uh, Michael Ondaatje's book, and even in the filming. W was this a strategy to get, to make the man afraid to, to say these things? Um, but in, as, as the scene was shot, uh, uh, Willem Dafoe playing Caravaggio says, uh, he's, he's suddenly really afraid, and he says, don't cut them, uh, my thumbs. And as an editor, you have a certain uh, degree of, of freedom. 
in terms of uh, using takes, which take to use, how many examples of that take. And somehow I, I thought in the back of my mind, back to this uh, little um, uh, observation that Malaparte made, was to um, play with this idea so that the first time Caravaggio said this line, I, I cut to the, the German interrogator, and the interrogator didn't really, it, what Caravaggio said didn't really register. Um, and then I used another take with a slightly different line reading, so Caravaggio repeats the line, uh, don't, don't cut them. Um, and that line reading was weaker, um, and that gets the attention of the interrogator, um, this display of weakness. And that, then the interrogator says, all right, uh, we're, I'm actually going to do it now. And he sets things in motion that results in Caravaggio losing his thumbs. Um, so, it, I mean, it's, it's a small, uh, it's a little, it's an arabesque in a sense in the scene. Uh, the scene would work perfectly well without that. It's, it's an example where having read something about that, it seemed to apply and uh, it allowed us to do some interesting things with the soundtrack at the same time. Let's go back to um, some of the observations of Malaparte himself um, and the way he is writes. And you begin this collection with Murderer a story that is set when he returned home to his dying mother. And all the elements that are to recur in his writing are there, family, women, and the awful beauty of war. He comes back to mm -hmm. this, this beauty of war. Um, you, I think, had chosen some pieces to read from that. <laughs> okay. I don't okay. have my book. You don't have your book? Okay, I'll give you my book. My book's marked differently than your book. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> and if you want to do it at the thingamajig, you can. Okay. I think I'll just sit here. Okay. So this uh, is a story that he wrote in, um, in the late... Um, it, was, it was published posthumously, so it was, this story was never published uh, until after his death. He, he died of lung cancer in 1957, um, he had always had lung problems as a result of being gassed in World War I. And it's believed that uh, it was complications from this that uh, made him uh, uh, suffer from lung cancer. Um, but in, uh, in the late 1940s, uh, his mother was dying and he returned um, to be with her um, and uh, this, this story, uh, which is about World War I, is told within um, the framework of, of him being with his mother. Uh, the whole of human history seems to be the story of men who kill and of men who are killed, of murderers who light their cigarettes with trembling hands, and of poor, unlucky kids staring into the eyes of those who bring them their deaths. But history is not about murderers, after all. It's just the story of some poor kids. The whole history of the world is just the story of millions of poor kids overwhelmed by the fear of death or by the fear of bringing death to others. 
My mother had closed her eyes and was breathing softly. Every so often, her right hand, abandoned on the white sheet, would shift slightly, opening and closing like the hand of a sleeping baby. The nurse came into the room just then as I had begun to tell the story of Jaco. She opened the door as slowly as possible, but I felt her presence behind my shoulders, bending over the bed, looking at my mother. She's sleeping, said the nurse. Don't wake her. I didn't turn around, but I continued my story in a low whisper. When I got to the part about the grenade, I heard the nurse tiptoeing out, closing the door behind her silently. The grenade exploded a few feet away while Jocko was helping to carry two wounded soldiers down the hill to the hospital tent. By the time I got to him, he was stretched out on the grass, breathing heavily. Everyone around him had been killed. He watched as I approached, and when I was close, he smiled. He had just been promoted lieutenant, even though he had not yet turned 19. Six months ago, when we were getting ready to leave Italy, Ercolani had taken me aside and said, Look out for Jocko. He's like a brother to me. Make sure nothing bad happens to him. I was irritated. War isn't a game. It doesn't play by the rules. If something bad happens to him, tough luck. But from that day on, I kept my eye on Giacoboni. He was about the same age as me, but seemed much younger. In any event, he turned out to be a good officer. He did his duty like all the others, like a good kid. He took war seriously, convinced that he would go home in one piece, back to his family in Monte Rotondo near Rome. And it was, perhaps, it was perhaps because of this that he smiled as I sat down next to him. I saw right away that it was hopeless. The grenade had torn open his abdomen and his intestines were cascading down his leg, past his knees and coiling onto the ground. We were surrounded by the dead, hundreds of them in the forest around us. Most were Italian, but there were a few Germans. They had advanced this far before we finally pushed them back. Their dead lay alongside ours. The rain on the oak leaves made soft music, like women whispering. Every so often, it would intensify as it darted here and there through the trees, rising and then fading away. The green reflections of the forest washed everything the color of water, gave an extraordinary likeness to things, to the solid trunks of the trees, to the bodies lying in the grass. Glimpsed through the branches of the trees, the sky appeared light and remote, a sky made of silk, luminous and pure, serene, scrubbed of clouds and fog. The rain was coming from who knows where, or maybe it was not even rain, just the memory of some rain falling from the depths of past summers from some childhood summer long ago. The soldiers under Jacko's command ran over to see what had happened. And from my expression, they understood there was nothing to be done. Finally, one of them turned and drifted away, followed by the rest. Every so often, they glanced back over their shoulders. I felt as if they were looking not at poor Jocko, but at me. When I finally stood up and started also to move away, Jocko asked me to stay. Don't leave me alone. I sat back down on the grass next to him and called out to the other soldiers, come back, don't leave him alone. They were Jacoboni's soldiers after all, not mine. They returned and sat down on the grass in a circle around Jaco. There was a long silence. Every so often, coming from somewhere deep in the woods, 
we would hear a metallic scraping and then the sound of rough voices, that indistinct noise soldiers make when they are preparing to attack. Jocko's soldiers began polishing their rifles using the oil from a tin of sardines. We had only one machine gun that worked, a Fiat, but no water for its cooling jacket, so a sergeant held the gun steady and some of the soldiers pissed into it. We were like wild animals in the woods, wounded animals who hear the hunt closing in, the hurried panting of the dogs and the voices of the hunters, those green voices in the yellow-green air of the woods. The morning was sweet, fresh, transparent. The rain lit up the trunks of the trees as it does in certain French paintings, lit up the grass too, which from a dark green around the trees slowly lightened as it edged out into the open, only to darken again further on as it neared another grove. We heard the hidden presence all around us of terrified hare, pheasant, rabbit, of deer crouched in some hole among the rushes. The sky above shone pure, serene, with a trace of blue so delicate it was almost green. And the even deeper green of the woods all around was light and transparent, full of birdsong. But on the rosy dawn of Jocko's face, the gray shadow of his evening was slowly lengthening, as if the sun, having not yet reached the summit of its crimson arc, was already setting, melting pure and delicate into the peaceful blue of the sky into a motionless brilliance flaming the tips of the trees, the grass, and the fragrant fields of wheat. The dazzling incandescence of that day, of that summer morning rich with the smell of grass, of leaves, of invisible waters, rich with the fresh smell of rain, the light of that morning was a brilliant shadow, veiling the glare of the sun such that the trees, reflecting the light from one another, from trunk to trunk, from bough to bough, had reformed themselves in the mirrored water of a pool into an upside-down perspective where I saw white clouds floating in the grass like water lilies. But little by little, Jacoponi's face was fading away. That gray shadow was slowly descending onto his poor child's face from a remote imperium full of de delicate and dazzling light. I can't take it anymore, he whispered, fixing each one of us one by one with his gaze smiling and silently moving his lips. And then he began to struggle. He struggled, grinding his teeth like a wounded animal, silently holding us in his gaze. His eyes, his smile, his childlike expression were exactly those of a dog in agony, a dying dog who looks to his master for relief. We could do nothing to ease his suffering, and so we all kept silent. But within each of us, something had begun to move, to be born. It was just then that one of the girls began to scream. It goes on. But. <laughs> it, do it does go on, and it's beautiful, and it so much speaks the story, unfolds very much into some of the war stories that we hear today. And where it says, the girls began to scream. There are some girls who've come to the front and the soldiers are behaving appalling with those girls. And it is 
very, this, just this year, we had an incident with an American, American soldiers behaving in such a way to their Afghani prisoners. And so here you see the repetitive nature of the behavior of mankind when put into this kind of situation. There's a Danish writer, Sven Haas, who died this year, and he wrote novels from the perspective of the disillusioned soldiers serving in the Nazi brigade, penal brigade, the Third Reich's version of the Dirty Dozen. And like Malapati, he wrote of World War II from an insider's point of view, one who was sickened by war. And he said, I write to warn the youth of today against war. I'm writing the story of the small soldiers, the men who neither plan nor cause wars, but have to fight them. Was Malapati writing for the same audience, or was he writing maybe more for the generals? What was, who, was, who was his audience? Where was he writing for? Well, I mean, this story in particular was not published in his lifetime. Um, it, it ends with Malapati killing Giacomoni. Um, to put him out of his misery. Um, so it's a confession, and in a sense, he's confessing this to his mother, uh, telling her whether she was conscious or not, we don't know. Um, but he is sitting, the son is sitting by the bedside of his mother, telling his mother how when he was 19, he killed this other soldier in war when there was no, um, seemingly no alternative to this suffering. Um, so, I don't know. Uh, Kaput, which is full of other stories like this, um, uh, although Malaparty was not a soldier in World War II, he was a, he was a journalist, a correspondent, um, but equally horrific things are retold in, in Kaput. Um, you know, there was a general feeling then, and it's, it's hard for us today quite to get back into that uh, mindset, but these cataclysms uh, had shaken the first half of the 20th century. Uh, World War I and then the economic uh, war uh, of, during the Depression, and then World War II, which was capped by... Um, concentration camps and mass murder and the atomic bomb. Um, and the general feeling was this may be it. You know, we, this thing, things are so bad and coming so rapidly bad uh, that somebody needs to witness this or to, to, to recount it for, for what, I don't know. Um, I don't think he had a, uh, an overt mission like that person to, as a social mission because the general feeling was it's all, it's all unwinding anyway. Um, so I, um, that, I, that I, I don't know the, the answer to that, but I suspect not. Okay. Well, moving on to something a little lighter. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is your copy, by the way. This is your... He wrote this wonderful piece called Today We Fly. And this is another part of the, the history of, of his time and something that he witnessed. Would you like to read that, dear? Okay. This, um, hap this is a, a thing that happened when Malaparte was probably 13. Um, he wrote this in the 1930s, so it's him 
looking back on an event, but it's the first time he and everyone in Prato, his hometown, saw an airplane. So it was right at the beginning of powered flight. Uh, the event actually happened. Uh, historically, this, this was uh, uh, an event um, by the aviator Monicero, uh, who was taking part in a demonstration in Florence, uh, in Tuscany, in uh, May of 1911. <clears throat> he was at school at that time, uh, a boarding school, so he lived at, at school. One Sunday morning, instead of studying the Iliad, I escaped with Bino, his friend, to Florence to see what miracles the aviator Monicero would perform, whether he would demonstrate the art of Daedalus or the folly of Icarus. We found the whole city festooned with banners on which was written, Today We Fly. They were everywhere, via Ceritani, via Cavour, via Calzaioli, Along the embankments, there was even one stretched all the way across the Arno with an enormous red, today we fly, reflected in the yellow water, like the famous in hoc signo vinces of Ponte Milvio. We almost expected that Florence itself would lift off with its towers, its statues, its red roofs, its cathedral's nodding cupola rising slowly through the clouds like a balloon. Every window, doorway, and marketplace was crammed with upturned faces scanning the sky for some sign of the direction the wind might take and whether there would come with it the smell of rain. We were most afraid of the wind from Bologna, proud enemy to the north. Almost as bad would have been the wind from the south, from Empoli, called the Scirocco, or Petrarch's east wind from Arezzo with its Grecian-accented gusts but even a soft westerly breeze from Pistoia, even that sweet breath from the ballads of Chino, full of dolce stil novo, would have spelled disaster. Luckily, the sky that Sunday was clear and the air was still. The leaves on the trees around the parade ground stood at ease and the outlines of the hills were crisp, sharp, sharply etched in the crystalline air. Just wait. Today we really will fly, said Bino with a smile. For overnight, today we fly had become a catchphrase fit for every occasion. For a straw hat rolling along the pavement, for a parasol blown around the corner, for a dress tangled up between the knees, or blown flapping like a flag around rounded hips. It was the happy time of the first airplanes before the war, when it was fashionable for women to wear enormous hairdos, as wide as their dresses were narrow, and those gigantic wings of hair, which were the objects of so many of our teenage jokes, have remained braided together in my heart with the fluttering, today we fly, maliciously good-natured mementos of my adolescence. We hurried over to the parade grounds, and there was Monacero, crouched in the cockpit of his machine, a contraption of woven reeds and papery cloth with a motor so small it made you think a horsefly was pinned to the frame behind his shoulders. The crowd had assembled, holding its breath, waiting for the miracle to happen, when suddenly the leaves began to tremble and the blades of, of grass to nod. A few tiny white clouds sprouted from like windowsills on Monte Morello, and the women's wings of hair began to come untucked 
from their padded nests of false braids. Monacero jumped out of his cockpit at the first sign of this unfortunate breeze, waved amicably to the crowd with a gloved hand, and yanked off his leather helmet while the banner was unfurled above the grandstands. Because of unsettled weather, today we will not fly. <laughs> it was hard to imagine anything more settled than the weather that day. A magnificent paradisical Sunday in spring, but all it took was this delicate breeze, this perfumed zephyr from Pistoia to spoil everything. We returned to Prata with heavy hearts and I took up my study of the abandoned Iliad, quiet and discouraged. <laughs> Thursday morning, the rumor began to spread that the following Sunday, if the weather was favorable, Monacero would attempt to fly from Florence to Prato and back, 30 kilometers round trip. By Saturday, Via Magnolfi, the Corso, Via Delocche, Via Firenzuola, all of the streets of Prato were crisscrossed with white banners carrying those fateful words, today we fly. By noon Sunday, rivers of people from the surrounding countryside were flooding into the city through its five gates. And by three o'clock, the cathedral square was awash with a restless and noisy crowd, pale, perspiring, noses in the air. I stood among them with my classmates, all of us impatient, barely kept in check by the stern gaze of our principal and the softer reprimands of the teachers. We began to hear a new word, velivolo, dancing above the buzz of the crowd. But that name for aeroplane, recently coined by D'Annunzio, seemed too delicate for the gaping mouths of dumbstruck farmers. It was still fresh, still smelled of varnish, and was as sweet and sharp in the mouth as mint candy. Suddenly, a white wing appeared in the blue sky, and the reed and paper bird grew larger, came closer, and hovered over the cathedral square. A cry, only one, but from a thousand throats. A cry more of fear than joy, and then sudden anguish, sil uh, silence bursting with anguish. Monocero was perhaps 200 meters above our head, and it seemed miraculous. Miraculous not just because he was flying, but because he was flying over Prato, in the virgin sky of Prato, which only the kites of children had dared to caress until today. As long as the flying was over Florence, things were fine. Certain facts in Florence are understandable, are legitimate, and fit within the logic of history. But over Prato, over Prato, where for centuries now nothing miraculous had happened, not on the ground and not in the sky, especially not in the sky. Over Prato, where it seemed that miracles had become impossible, caught as we were between the historic pride of Florence and the ancient jealousy of Pistoia. Sacrificed, reduced to poor relations, robbed not only of everything that we had, which would have been bad enough, but of everything we might have wanted to have. And yet here was Monacero, Monacero flying in our sky, in the neglected sky of Prato. And he was flying, or so it seemed, better than he might have flown in the sky of Florence, of Florence, better than in any other sky in Tuscany. After a moment, though, the suspicion began to grow that he might fly as far as Pistoia. Every, everyone held their breath, balanced on one foot, 
heart stopped between beats, the treacherous sky of Pistoia. <laughs> Some of us took out our keys, ready to rattle them against such a betrayal. The rest of us set our lips to whistle in defiance. But Monticero veered to the right, and after a wide turn over Prato, he headed back toward Florence. The city detonated with joy. I lost myself in the crowd beyond thought, proud citizen of Prato to my bones. It wouldn't be too much to say that all of us that day felt we held a piece of sky in our hands. That night, in my dreams, the Achean army assembling beneath the walls of Troy came to a halt, astonished at what lay before them. Stretching from tower to tower, immense white banners on which great letters, red letters spelled out, today we fly. And then Troy, the city of Priam, which from a distance resembled nothing more than Prato, detached itself gently from the earth, hovered with its banners snapping in the breeze and drifted away into the clear sky, swinging gently from side to side. Maddened Achilles ran along below, commanding, stop, stop, and from the buzz of his accent, you might have thought he was from Pistoia. <laughs> Beloved Priam from the top of the Trojan gates answered sweetly, too late, too late, and his voice had all of the soft accents of Prato taking flight. Vera Pavlova was quoted in the Daily Beast, and she said, poetry should be written the way adultery is committed, on the run, on the sly, during the time not accounted for, and then you come home as if nothing has happened. <laughs> you seem to have so much fun with this. <laughs> Talk a little bit about how and why you started to do it. You see how difficult this is. <laughs> <laughs> um, w one of the things that surprised me, um, I, I, I should say I, I heard about Malaparte in the mid-1980s and got the books that had been translated into English, two of them, um, and then through friends in Italy, found, uh, asked them to, I asked them to send me more books uh, uh, from, uh, that had not been translated. And um, it, it wasn't until the mid-1990s, I, I was doing an interview after The English Patient came out, and I made the point uh, that sort of occurred to me spontaneously that film editing is a kind of translation that you're translating from one language to another. It just happens that the language you're starting with is the language of the written word, the text of the, the screenplay, uh, and you're translating it into another language, which is the language of images and time and color and sound. And um, like any translation, certain languages are more efficient with some concepts than others. Uh, you need six words to say something in one language and one word in another. So when you're translating, you're always taking this imbalance into account. And that's 
uh, what's certainly going on in my head when I'm editing a film. Should I do exactly what the screenplay says, or should I do what is obvious that happened during the, on the set, or something else, like that little example of uh, Don't Cut Me from, uh, uh, from The English Patient. So um, the, after the interview, uh, I, I came back home and was thinking, well, did that make any sense? And then an accusatory accused myself because I hadn't done any translation, uh, language translation. So I thought, well, the film is over. This was after the English patient. Um, I'm not doing anything else. I'll try translating to see whether it's true or not. And I, so I thought, well, who better than Malaparte? Because uh, I had this passionate interest in him. So I took something, I, th I think it was Today We Fly, um, and started working on it. And uh, I did feel very congenial that the, the, the same sort of chatter that goes on in your head when you're editing a film, should I use this or that? Should I, if I do this, then I have to compensate by doing that. Uh, but, oh, I have an idea, if we do this, then this, uh-huh. And so this sort of little manic dialogue is going on all the time in, in the, the silent editing room. Um, and I, f I found that, in fact, the same sort of chatter was going on when I was translating from Italian into, into English. What surprised me uh, was that this story, which had originally been in, written in prose, uh, started to fragment on the page. Um, and um, I'm somebody who might be called poetically challenged. Uh, I, I love poetry in the abstract, but when I'm confronted with poetry in person, I, my eye kind of bounces off it. Um, so I thought, well, this is interesting. I'll let, I'll let it go and see, see what happens. And so, as a result, this, that story, uh, Today We Fly, and, and maybe half of the work in this book has that ragged structure. And uh, afterwards, I was thinking, well, why, why did that happen? Um, and um, I, fundamentally, I don't know, but it, it has, I think, to do with the fact that in Italian, uh, particularly in mid-century Italian, the tendency was to write in solid blocks of text, not even breaking it up into paragraphs, so that page after page are these solid uh, things. And um, the imagery, as, as you can kind of tell, is so uh, evocative, uh, Malaparte, that when translating it into English, it needs to somehow be aerated. If I just translated it into these solid blocks of text, your eye would kind of, would find it hard to find its way throughout all of this density. So it's a way of, of lightening it uh, on the page and allowing you to read it um, with some of the musicality that exists in Italian, but that is lost when it's translated uh, in, into English. You... We were talking the other day, we do, we were, um, 
And we were talking about the visit of the angel. And uh, it's a beautiful piece. And when we were talking about the piece, you very easily said, I'm convinced that this was a miscarriage. And when I thought about it, I went, well, of course, that's what it is. But I was deeply embarrassed with myself that as an old midwife and as a lover of literature, I had really lost that. It had just gone over me. I had taken it very, very literally. And without knocking me about too much, can you talk a little bit about what do, what do we miss in one language as opposed to two languages? When you're looking at, at words in two languages, maybe one is able to sometimes see something broader. When, when you're really deeply involved with the literature, I could have gone broader in another couple of readings. I, I, I don't think, I think in Italian it's just as ambiguous it, 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 as it is in English. It, it's, uh, it's the story of, he's, he's with his, another girlfriend uh, at home in uh, Tuscany uh, sometime in the mid-30s. And he wakes up and she is, he hears, hears a cry and she, he wakes up and she's not in bed, and he, he goes out onto the landing and sees her halfway down the stairs uh, uh, with uh, an expression of what he calls ecstatic dismay. And she's looking at something in the room downstairs, and he comes down and sees that an angel has appeared in the room, this, a little boy angel with two delicate wings like poplar leaves on his back, and, uh, but full of light, a brilliant angel who didn't seem to see them, uh, but was kind of wandering around the room, caressing the furniture and looking out. It was a brightly moonlit night. And um, the, the rest of the story is um, a, an evocation of what is it like when an angel, a little boy angel appears to you, um, and the mixture of wonder and fear that goes with that. What does this, what does this mean? And uh, his uh, girlfriend is more struck by this, um, uh, e even more so than, than he is. And um, the, the angel eventually sees them and comes over and looks through and past them and then reaches out and touches the girl and she collapses uh, in unconsciousness. Um, and an unconsciousness is so deep that it seems to be near death. And um, he gets angry at the angel uh, at this point who, and the angel disappears and he's left with his girlfriend um, uh, described in somewhat similar terms as, as with Jocko, with this gray uh, coloring uh, covering her. And he yells at the angel um, to come back. Uh, don't, you know, take me as well. Don't, don't just take her. And the angel does reappears uh, and then uh, does a similar touch. And then she begins to come back to consciousness and the angel disappears. So it's, uh, you, you read it as the story of a kind of a metaphysical contact with the other world and it works very well on that level. But you know, just over the, the time that I 
translated it and then reworking it and doing all of the, the work that you do uh, on a piece, it struck me that probably uh, this was uh, the, the soul of, the ch of a child who had just been miscarried and that had put this girlfriend's life in danger and that it was a, a poetic retelling of it. But it, it's so, you know, it, it's uh, like, like anything, uh, uh, a song that seems to touch on several different things. You're, you're almost, you know, should you talk about what you think it is or just let it be what it is uh, to, and let each reader uh, take it at face value, which, so I don't, uh, you know, this is the first time I've talked about that, uh, you know, what I think is really going on under there. But, um, you know, it, it doesn't affect the work itself, uh, which stands on its own as being just self-evidently what it, what it is. Okay, well, I think we're, we're getting, we're going to run out of people being able to cope with this, darling. So, we, <laughs> but there are, there are two other pieces I'd, I'd like to talk about. One is The Gun Gone Mad. And maybe uh, talk about this is a story that's uh, very much from the perspective of a gun dog, a working dog. And it's a, at a very critical point in, in the war. Just maybe briefly outline that. Yeah, this um, was, took place in the Second World War. And uh, Malaparte was moving through the Eastern Front and he'd come down into Romania. Um, and then gone through Romania down uh, the Danube or up the Danube uh, into Yugoslavia, what was then the kingdom of Yugoslavia. Um, and he was a few days away from Belgrade when the Nazis uh, uh, carpet bombed Belgrade uh, in an operation called Operation Punishment. Uh, because the, um, the Yugoslavians had had second thoughts about linking up with the Nazis, um, and this was uh, impeding Hitler's desire to move through Yugoslavia and uh, then into Romania and then at the Soviet Union, um, which this Operation Barbarossa, which was the attack on the Soviet Union. So to soften up. Uh, his allies, uh, or putrid allies, he, it was the first carpet bombing in World War II. Uh, unannounced, uh, no declaration of war, it was just out of the blue. Um, uh, the city was carpet bombed, somewhere around 20,000 people died uh, in the bombardment. It's still remembered today, uh, if you're a Serbian, that event which happened on, uh, around Easter of, uh, 1942, I believe, um, was, um, uh, anyway, it was a huge, Malaparte retells the bombing from the point of view of a dog. Um, he uh, is friends with the, uh, the Italian legation in Belgrade, and he eventually, after the bombing stops, Malaparte makes his way uh, to uh, the the embassy, and he meets his old friend there. Um, and this friend had a, a dog, a hunting dog, a, a red setter, uh, who was traumatized uh, um, by the, the bombing. 
and uh, had, had, they'd all gone down into the bomb shelter when the bombing started, and the, but the dog wouldn't come back, didn't trust um, people anymore because of this horrific, these horrific uh, noises. Um, and so the, the bombing itself, which Malaparte did not witness, but saw from a distance, uh, but then was told about it uh, by his friends, he retells the story as it was perceived by the dog. Um, and then once Malaparte gets to the embassy, the question is how to fix the post-traumatic syndrome stress uh, of this dog. What, what can we do to set the dog right? In the end, they figure something out, um, but it's... Um, um, he, uh, loved dogs. Uh, he, he loved dogs um, more than human beings. Uh, he always had a dog somewhere. Uh, so um, that, that was the one story that I know of where this dog has a, a, dog has a central uh, role. Okay. We can't get to Finland and we can't get to China. But maybe we can, you can end by reading the poem of China. Okay. Okay. This uh, one of the other contradictions in uh, his life. Uh, he, he assumed the name Malaparte when he was in his mid-20s. His real name, as I mentioned, is, was Sukert. Um, but he didn't like that name, and he took the name Malaparte, which is a joke on Bonaparte. Um, when somebody said, why did you choose that name? He said, I would have chosen Mala uh, Bonaparte, but it was already taken. So Malaparte, kind of the opposite of Bonaparte, but it means bad part, doesn't fit. Um, there's even a rumor that Malaparte himself uh, took part in that he was not really his father's legitimate son. And there is a phrase in Italian, mal partorito, which means badly born. Uh, and you would describe a bastard as mal partorito. So to take your name, malaparte, so similar to mal partorito, anyway. It's, uh, he, he was a, a fascist uh, until he was kicked out of the party. He had this kind of... Um, uh, living divorce, after divorce, living arrangement in Italy uh, through the rest of his life, although he tried to live in France in the late 1940s. Um, but after the war, uh, he became a communist. And uh, he was invited, uh, he, he started getting very interested in Chinese communism toward the end of his life. Um, and he visited China. He was the first Western journalist to interview Mao after the Korean War, and on this trip, um, uh, this is something he wrote. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to read it now because of what China means to all of us now in the early part of the 20th century. This is China from 1957, 56-57. China is made of earth, of sun-dried mud. In this part of China, he's going to Xi'an, right in the center of China. In this part of China, everything is made from the earth. The houses, the walls around the cities and villages, the tombs scattered over the countryside, even the people. There are hills below that appear to be 
piles of mud set out to dry in the sun, naked, without a single tree or bush. They crowd around the landscape like the coils of bulging intestines tossed on the ground outside butcher's shops, slowly unraveling. Sometimes we fly so low that we almost touch them. And then I notice that the wind has brushed some kind of pattern into the earth, a mysterious alphabet written in the mud, struggling to communicate something precise. But there is not a single animal or human being in the yellow desert below, not a single village. Suddenly, we are landing, Xi'an, the geographic center of China, where Chinese civilization was born in the cradle of the Yellow River. In front of the terminal, three children are playing with a lump of earth. They're bundled up in jackets and brightly printed cotton trousers. I join them in their game until a young woman comes out of the terminal to call me in for dinner. One of the children grabs me by my overcoat to keep me from leaving. So do the other two, clinging to me, asking me not to go. The young woman comes out again and yells at them to stop. They let go, disappointed. One of them calls to me as I turn away, come back soon. We eat quickly and then take off for Langchao. My three new friends wave goodbye to me. The littlest one gives me a present, a pebble, a precious gift. In this part of China, there are no stones. You have to go to Karelia to find stone or very far north or to the Caucasus or to Southern Siberia along the slopes of the Pamir slanting toward the steppes of Central Asia. I put the pebble in my pocket to take back home to show what a precious gift I was given by a little Chinese girl, a pebble from the cradle of Chinese civilization. A civilization made of earth, a civilization without bones, without a skeleton for support, a civilization of assembled customs which suddenly unravel, dissolving into thousands of separate gestures thousands of calligraphic icons, thousands of smells, colors, flavors, thousands of different shades. And then just as suddenly they solidify again into tradition, memory, habit. It is this absence of stone, of solid, durable material, which makes China such an exquisite thing. Everything is reflected. An unimaginable number of movements, of patterns, thoughts, images, of which we see the copies in immense numbers, but never the originals. The originals were destroyed long ago. Uh, the originals were destroyed long ago. Here are the four elements out of which China is made. Earth, wood, porcelain, silk. The most durable of these is silk. I should add a fifth element, poetry, which is the most durable of all. So Amanda has the bowler hat from home. And uh, if you have any questions and want to write them on your cards and put them in the hat and she'll bring them up. Yes. Did you say that he wrote that when we fly today when he was 13? No, no. He, he wrote it when he was uh, in his mid-30s. 
but it was something that had happened to him when he was when he was 13. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. No, he was a talented writer at a young age, though. And uh, I just also like to thank uh, Matthew and Janet uh, Robbins, who have been supplying me like a drug addict. Drug addict. Uh, they spend part of the year in Europe, and they bring back malaparte things that uh, I can't find in the United States. And so this has been very valuable to the production of this book. Thank you. So how much Italian did you know before starting to translate? Uh, well, actually, Matthew and I uh, had, uh, we, we went to Johns Hopkins University together as, as kids. Um, and um, we went to uh, university in Italy, at, in Perugia. Uh, so we'd studied Italian at Johns Hopkins, but then went uh, uh, for the, the summer semester to Perugia and studied Italian there. And um, you know, I just kind of kept it up uh, afterwards, but I didn't really... Um, dig into it uh, until I started doing these translations in the, in the mid-1990s. So it's um, just, um, I, I had some knowledge. I, I had studied Romance languages uh, at university, um, so I knew French and, and Italian. Um, but actually translating is a you know, slightly different part of your brain that you use. What can you tell us about the famous Malaparte house in Capri? Oh, uh, this is another, uh, he, he built a house um, which is a, a strange, ancient, modern um, re-evocation of prison in a sense. It, it, the, uh, it's, it's almost a cell block, but with great artistic flair. Um, <laughs> Uh, built on a point sticking out into the sea in Capri uh, in Italy. And he built it with a local mason. So the two of them put it together by hand uh, themselves. Um, and um, it has since become one of the icons of 20th century domestic architecture. There are books dedicated to it. Um, and uh, that's just another one of his... Uh, the many hats that he wore was this hat of, uh, you know, groundbreaking modern architect. Are all the stories autobiographical, do you think? Uh, the, the, there's a strong I presence um, in every story. Um, I, I talk about this in, in the introduction. Uh, there's a uh, one of the books that was translated into English uh, was called The Skin, uh, which was made into a, a movie in the early 1980s um, by Lil Liliana Cavani. Um, and uh, it's the story of his experience being part of the, uh, he was a cultural attache with the American army as they moved north from Naples into Rome. And, um, but one of the stories in this book is uh, events happening in Finland at the same time. Uh, and the narrator of this other story is another I 
I did this, I did that. Um, but clearly, if you have to choose between two different eyes, you, you have to make a choice. And uh, all of the circumstantial evidence is that Malaparte was in Italy, not in Finland. Um, so in a certain sense, this other story is not the truth. It's not autobiographical. It's not journalistic truth. Um, but it is um, another, it's, it's a story uh, who happens to have a central character called I. Um, in the story, in its defense, not that it needs defending, but it was published posthumously, so who knows what changes he would have made had, uh, had the book been published during his lifetime. And also, he never says who that I is. He never says, I, Malaparte. Uh, whereas in the other book, The Skin, that, that definitely is, people say, you, Malaparte, do this or do that. Um, so uh, it's ambiguous, um, frequently, whether something really happened exactly the way you t tend to read it or not. So many good questions. They're going to knock us off pretty soon. Um, what about... These two are going to put together. What about politicals, uh, Malaparte's political observations that what now needing repeating? And if Malaparte were alive today, what would his descriptions of war and militarism in 2012 be like? Think drones. Mm. Yeah, no, it's... Um, I, I, he died, as I said, of lung cancer at a relatively young age of 59. Um, and uh, I think part of him would be surprised that we're still here. Uh, there was this general feeling that the apocalypse was imminent uh, because of uh, atomic bombs um, and that, um, that, that the world, to the extent that the world more or less resembles uh, the world immediately post-World War II, um, I think he would find remarkable. What he would find very familiar, of course, is the fact that we're still uh, doing what we're doing, but with these, this, all of this new technology. There were many new technologies in World War I, the tank being preeminent uh, among them. The tank then was the equivalent of what the drone is today, this seemingly impregnable uh, object that could crush uh, any obstacle, barbed wire, human beings, fences before it, and where you couldn't get at the people inside. The drone is just the taking that idea and extending all of the parameters as far as you can go with it in terms of the, the relative safety of the person who's operating this device. Um, I, I, I wonder, uh, I wonder what, what he would say. What was his personal life like, and how did it influence his work? And did he, Malaparte, have a wife or a mate? He had many girlfriends, um, and they're in these stories. They have other names. He calls them Roman, with, with names from ancient Rome, like Flaminia or Lavinia. Um, he, was in, he was a foreign correspondent in Moscow shortly after Lenin died, and he had a a kind of uh, um, unfortunate love affair that never consummated uh, with a Russian girl. 
Um, and so there are many, many women, uh, one, one of them American. There was a young American girl who fell in love with him in the late 1940s, early 1950s, who committed suicide um, because their, their lives just couldn't fun, come together. Uh, she was an actress at Chinichita at the time. Um, so he, he was, uh, by descriptions of, of uh, his biographers, there are two biographies that have been written, uh, one in Italy about 25 years ago, another one in France that has just been published a, a year or so ago that won the Prix Goncourt, uh, which is the big literary prize in France uh, for uh, 2011 uh, on Malaparte. So his, there's a resurgence, I think, uh, of interest in him. Uh, Milan Kundera's latest book, Encounter, the last chapter of that book is dedicated to Malaparte, to um, reviving Malaparte. Uh, Kundera is very interested in him as a writer. Um, so his, his personal life was dedicated to writing and all of these other things that he did. Um, and uh, in terms of a normal family life uh, with a wife, certainly no kids that have uh, been acknowledged. There, there may be illegitimate children, but I don't, I don't know about them. What was it about fascism that appealed to Malaparte? And can you speak about the way his fascism affected his poetry? Yeah, he, he was known in the 20s as one of the preeminent writers of fascism. It's, it's you know, the word has such a uh, connotation today, connotations upon connotations. It's, uh, it's hard quite to get back into the mindset of, of Italy or, or really the world. Um, most people, uh, Hitler was looked at askance, but Mussolini in general, was seen as a very good thing. Um, I, I mentioned this character, Italo Balbo, um, who was the head of the Air Force in Italy in the 1930s. Um, Balbo led a fleet of seaplanes from flying from Italy to Iceland, to Newfoundland, to Lake Michigan, and he landed this fleet of seaplanes uh, in Lake Michigan uh, to celebrate the World's Fair of Chicago in 1933. And to this day, there's a street in Chicago named Italo Balbo Street. Um, so, the, the, as I said earlier, the, the feeling in the early days of fascism was get these old guys out of there and let's reform society. The, the corruption of Italy that had resulted in the mismanagement and the deaths of many people, soldiers during the war, and the corruption of corporations and companies with government and the military, all sounds kind of familiar, um, was kind of, let's clean it all out. And as frequently happens, the best of intentions, whatever they are, that fascism wound up being even more of that kind of thing under, under Mussolini. So it, um, he, he was a dedicated fascist for a number of years. And then, as I said, fell afoul of them in the early 1930s. And then it got much more complicated after that and he eventually became a communist. You mentioned the Carl Sagan of France. Who is that? This is uh, Hubert Reeves. Um, I, I should, um, there's a wonderful bit of 
cycle poetry here because this book, uh, uh, which was uh, the state of cosmology uh, as it was in 1986, um, was where I first heard about Malaparte. And I, I started doing these translations um, regularly at the end of a film. I would do another couple of translations because it was a way of sort of easing myself back into ordinary life. The, the nature of film is that as you get closer and closer to the deadline, the work gets more and more frantic, and then there's a, there's a cliff, and then suddenly you're, you hit the windshield and you propel through the windshield into ordinary life. And um, you're, you wonder, now what? Uh, so there's, uh, there's a certain kind of post-traumatic stress disorder that, that has to be coped with. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, one way of, of the, the problem with film editing is that it's hard to edit unless you're actually working on a film. Um, and so one way to sort of make the ramp a little less steep is to do these translations because, as I said, they, they occupy exactly the same part of my brain uh, that is most active when I'm editing a film. I'm, I'm doing very different things with my hands, but the brain is doing very similar um, kinds of things. Did Malapati know Ezra Pound? I wonder. I, I don't know. I, I've never, I haven't read any connection between them, but uh, Pound was, a, was a, uh, in favor of fascism and got into a lot of trouble during the war because of that. But uh, I don't know. I, I haven't read any reference to Pound. Do you think that translation is finally collaboration? Well, it, uh, yeah, in, in a sense, although it's a one-sided collaboration. Because I mean, in, in this case, Malaparte is long uh, dead. He's, he's been dead for you know, 55 years. Um, so... Uh, I certainly feel that way when I'm doing it, that there is a kind of uh, ping-pong match being played. Um, there's a great deal of uncertainty. You know, I can read a story and I think, well, this, I, this is good. I, I would like to translate this. Um, but then when you actually dive in and start to get under the skin of the story, how it really comes out and whether it's really going to work or not is not a foregone conclusion. So there is a sense that you're, you're playing ping pong with this invisible other person who may suddenly you know, send you a ball that makes, makes you miss your return. Um, so, but it, it does feel collaborative. It, it isn't in the fully um, formed sense of that word. And finally, what is beside your bed that you read tonight? Mm. Well, I, I, I am rereading that very book that uh, the, the Hubert Reeves book, the Carl Sagan of France. I, 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 got, I forgot what I was going to say, that sidetrack, because I just came back from New York where I've been working on a feature documentary about the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, the atom smasher that is looking for the Higgs boson. And um, this book, I started talking to CounterPoint uh, about publishing this book just about a year ago. 
And so it's taken a year to get permission. We had to deal and, and talk to the Malaparty estate. It was a very strange experience for me to get an email one day in my inbox that was uh, had the name Alessia Suckert, which was this family name. She is the person who runs the Malaparte estate. Um, but here on, in the very month that this book has been published, I finished the work on this uh, film, which was all about investigating the Higgs boson, which was exactly what this Hubert Reeves was trying to explain when he told the story of the frozen horses. So there's a, there's a wonderful sort of symmetry that crosses 25, 26 years uh, as a result of that. Okay. All right, thank you very much. Thank you.